when we arrived at the pole, they, first of all, they said, what are you doing here? They didn't have a clue that we, where we'd come from, what, what were we doing? <laughs> and apparently the Russians at our base camp in Nova hadn't, hadn't rang forward and hadn't, hadn't told them that we were on our way. Um, after a couple of days of walking around, around the base, they, they eventually, a, a nurse very kindly told me that I could have a shower. <laughs> we hadn't showered for 50 days. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of To The Max. My guest today is Richard Dunwoody, MBE. Originally from Belfast, Richard is a retired British jockey in national hunt racing. Over the course of his career, he has won the Grand National twice, the King George VI Chase four times, the Cheltenham Gold Cup and the Champion Hurdle. Until 2002, Richard held the record for most career wins at 1,874 and received the Leicester Award for Jump Jockey of the Year five times. After retiring from racing, Richard has turned to presenting, adventuring and photography. He has conducted expeditions globally in an effort to raise money for charities, which took him from a 48-day trek to the South Pole on a route previously attempted by Shackleton to a 2,000-mile walk across the length of Japan, among others. His photography of equine in Pakistan, India, Egypt and Guatemala has been in exhibition at St. Martin's in the Fields in support of the charity Brook Hospital for Animals. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Richard for taking the time to share his experiences. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Let's get into it. How much of a, or like the winning of a race, uh, is based on the horse's performance, and how much is based on the jockey's performance? Like, can a good jockey win on a slow horse, and can a bad jockey win on a fast horse? Well, I've been asked this question quite a lot over over the years, and I've all, always said it's it's basically it's ninety percent horse, ten percent jockey. Really, um, you know, if it's it's very hard. The best horse in the in the race can be on the day um in good form can be very very hard to beat whoever rides it um and i think that the top jockeys always said is i compare almost with with formula one it's it's about getting in the best car uh like lewis hamilton has done over the the past few years uh being in the best car and and making then the fewest mistakes uh, so you're winning the, the the most races that you you should you should win, um, and you know being consistent day in day out, um, being on top of your game, uh, and basically that's that's it. So they say good horses make good jockeys. Yeah, I think to a certain extent that also is is true. Yeah, and so you talked about almost like cars. Is there similar comparisons that like you might look at a car and be like, oh, that one's got certain aspects that are quicker? Like, what are the kind of if it was top trumps with with horses, what would the kind of categories be? Yeah, the the one thing you know that you you're dealing with a, an animal. It's it's got its own mind, um, yeah. and you know that's and and some days just like us, uh, they have their off days. Um, it, it doesn't and their peaks and troughs inform through through the season. Trainers are trying to get them to peak. Uh, on the very very big days, you know the Cheltenham Gold Cup. If it was say Desert Orchid, that they were looking to the goal, David Ellsworth would be looking to the Cheltenham Gold Cup um, as the day that he really wanted the the, the horse to peak. And sometimes it, it doesn't happen. Sometimes it certainly did, like when he won uh, the Gold Cup with Simon Sherwood. Um, but you know, it's it's you're, you're, it's very very different from from cars in in that respect. Um, and also what makes it, you know, it's getting, getting a horse, uh, to click, um, knowing, trying to almost get inside the horse's head a little bit. 
sometimes a horse will run for the stick, um, you know, responds to the stick, pulls out more for the stick. Um, you know, there's very strict uh, r- rules, regulations about the use and correct use of the stick, but it's undeniable that uh, the whip used correctly will make some horses go go a good deal quicker. Um, and, you know, that's part of being um, a top jockey, a good jockey. So how much of like a responsibility do you feel as a jockey for like the welfare of the animals? Like over the years has almost the awareness for their welfare increased in the public eye? Yeah, certainly has. Um, you know, the fences, for example, now at, at Liverpool and uh, the entry fences um, have become a, a good deal fairer, good some would say you know, a lot, lot easier than they, they were in the, say, the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, yeah, and that's, you know, it's it's our showcase for, for steeplechasing. And, and that's, that's the way it is in, in uh, this day and age. Um, so the welfare has improved dramatically, uh, veterinary facilities for the horses at, at the race course. And you know the way jockey look out, looks after a jockey looks after a horse through the race um, is very very important that he doesn't really push it to the limit when it's you know it's it's tired or if it, you know a jockey has to pick up that a horse has perhaps gone lame on the odd occasion uh, you have to know and you have to realise that straight away and and be in a position to to pull up your your horse so you minimise uh, that risk of injury. So how well do you actually know? like the horse that you're racing because one some some of the things I started to realize was that pretty much all good riders had multiple horses or that they didn't own the horse and like a sponsor owned it like how much yeah. time would you spend with these horses before going into say a racing very very different from say show jumping or um eventing dressage you know those guys will train with their horses day in day out um many hours a day sometimes um, we will, the most of my rides I had in one year was, was 900. I probably rode about 600 different horses that year. And a lot of those wow. horses, I would have just literally got on in the paddock. Um, that would have been the first time I, I, I'd seen the horse or maybe once or twi- twice before I'd ridden against him in another race. Another jockey had been riding him. You try and find out as much as you can. You do your homework, you go through its form. If it's run before, uh, idiosyncrasies of of each horse and and try and and try and find out as much as you can about it before you actually take him down to the start so basically you're on him in the paddock canter him down to the start and then you jump off in a race and literally probably five seven minutes uh before you're you're, you set off that's that's it wow so do you find that uh, it's almost like the experience as a jockey that you've gained over the years gives you that ability to be able to hop on like these 600 horses and almost do you get a sort of feeling immediately when you see the horse and when you're actually on it that it's going to behave in this way or that way? Yeah, yeah. Um, it certainly did. The experience like in, in anything um, stands you in good stead for those horses. But what, however long I'd have been riding, I've been riding 50 years there would there would always come along. There would always be a horse that would surprise me. That would do something out of the norm, um, and yeah, um, I always remember towards the end of my career, um, there was there was one horse I rode for for Philip Hobbs, for example, jumped fantastically well all through the race. I thought this is great. Tony McCoy was in the race, 
I slipped up his inner into into the straight, uh, one fence to jump uh, at Hereford. And I get about three strides off off the last fence. This horse has jumped perfectly all the way through the race. Um, and the horse is seen in a sort of imaginary shadow in front of the fence just before the last, did a side step oh. to the left, and I, I fell clean off him. And, you know, oh. that, that was towards the end of my career. So um, anything can happen, horses. But as you say, you, you try and eliminate as many mistakes as you can, but you will never, ever eliminate them totally. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've been talking about a lot with people recently on the podcast is almost like failure and the, the power of failure and learning from that. And um, one of the phrases I like using at the moment is, what would you say is your most spectacular failure? Like, what, what was the greatest shock to you that almost taught you the most? Oh, um, I'm sure there are plenty of those uh, along the way. Um, and I always basically, you say about failure, failure for me was fear of failure was a real driving force um, for me all the way through through my career. Um you know, when you when I'd been un, unseated, I'd go back and I'd watch the tape and why did that happen, and and not to do it again. Um, I I was lucky, you know. You come to the last in the national. If something had gone wrong, or if I'd been beaten on Mini Homer, I don't think I'd have been able to live with myself for many years. Um, you know, fortunately, I I felt I'd hit the, the front on on Mini Homer in the ninety four Grand National a bit soon. I felt if I'd been beaten, I I, I certainly would have been blamed for it. Um, so f- I was fortunate in those failures, possibly like falling off at the last at Hereford all those years ago. I f- got unseated in a, a big race at a Chalham, the Arkle trophy. I had a chance of winning it, not to say I would have won it. Um, but yeah, they, they come along and hopefully you, you should just put it behind you, move on, on to the next winner, on to the next ride. Uh, but it's very hard to to cope with those uh, those big failures at times. Yeah, is there almost like a lot of um... superstition? Superstition, yeah, uh, yeah, very superstitious. Um, I didn't really have too many superstitions in the in the wear room. Some some guys would be, you know, would always use the same British, the same boots. They were worn out. There were holes in them. You know, if they'd ridden a few winners in some some item of clothing, they'd wear it until until it sort of literally dropped off them in the end. But um, uh, no, didn't have. You know, you waved at magpies on the way to the race course and did all of that sort of stuff. But um, uh, yeah, no, I wasn't as super superstitious as some of the guys. So, did you have a, a few favourite horses you you rode? Um, Desert Orchid was the the best horse. I was I was lucky enough to to ride. Um, Colin Brown had him to begin with. He was a, a tear away basically, um, <laughs> and a very hard to to ride in those days. Then he went. That was over hurdles. Then he went chasing. Colin, Colin continued to to ride him until he retired. And then Simon Sherwood came along, won nine races out of ten on him, including the Gold Gold Cup. Um, and then, fortunately for me, again, um, Simon retired, and I got the the ride on him thanks to my my trainer at the time, David Nicholson, helped me secure the ride uh, on Desert Desert Orchid. Um, and certainly the best steeplechaser I rode very intelligent, but also they say oh, horses don't know they they've won. He certainly knew. Uh, when he'd won a, a race, when he'd been beaten, um, and I, I don't think I'd ever ridden a horse more competitive 
in a close finish, he always, it wasn't so much me asking him for more. It was, it was him digging, digging deep and just giving, giving more of his own accord. Um, and I was lucky to ride him in one, one close finish, um, as Sandown. And he just absolutely gave me everything, uh, that day. And, uh, also with Simon Sherwood on various occasions, he, he dug really, really deep, especially that gold cup. So is it almost that intuition from the horse itself that really separates the good horses from like the champions? Um, yeah, I think that's the thing that's separated him. Um, being he was he was an intelligent horse as, as well. He loved he loved racing. He loved loved competing. He loved you know he is pretty jumping fence to fence uh, as a rule as he usually did. Uh, it was you know it was a joy to sit on him and it was a joy for a lot of people to watch as well. Yeah, for a lot of people who might not know exactly the the, high, the kind of behind the scenes of the race, what what did your kind of team look like? What was the training like? What was it? What, what happened up until that point when you were on the TV screen on race day? They say oh, it's just the the jockey and the and the horse, but there's um, we always say there's a huge team um, behind. It. Obviously, there's the trainer, there's the owner that pays pays the bill. Uh, there was Janice Coyle, who's looked after Desiree Orchid. Rodney, uh, Rodney Bolt rode him out most days. Uh, there would be the head lad. There'd be the, the the vet, the guy that shot him, the blacksmith, uh, the feed merchants, you know, all the other horses in the yard. There'd be a huge team there, maybe 60, 80 horses. Um, that would probably be tw- a staff of 25 to 30 people, assistant trainer, help make all the decisions as far as entering for, for races. Um, a very, very big team uh, behind that horse. And then on my side, um, towards the end of my career, I had a, I had a driver uh, help me, um, you know, take me to the races, chauffeuring me to the races, a secretary, um look after all my affairs at, at home, decent physio, very, very important. Um, when you're a jockey getting probably 70, 80 falls a season, um, I had two or three people I, I depended on at that stage, depending on the, on the injury. Um, I did, I started using a um, sports psychologist in by 93, 94, Peter Terry. Um, so I did it. The longer my career went on, of course, an agent as well, um, booking the rides. Um, you know, we'd be racing now. Nowadays, they race seven days a week, um, and that's to have a good agent is as important as 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 anything. Uh, being being a jockey, so a very yeah. very big team around myself, but also around the horse. So within that kind of team, in terms of like hierarchy, were you the face? of the group or were you almost like leading from the front and how did that change over your career? Yeah, I suppose on my side, I was, uh, I was the, the face of the group. So, you know, um, Robert Kington, Robert Parsons were, were my two agents through, through my career. Their job was, as we said, vitally important. Uh, Liz Simmons, secretary, um, drive various drivers as, as, as well. So I'd be the face on that side. And then, if it was Desert Orchid, David Ellsworth was the face of, um, and Richard Burridge, who paid the bills, was the owner. They were the, the, the conversely, the head of the, of the other team, um, the CEO and the, and, the, and the chairman, basically. I remember reading how many times you raced. It was nearly 2,000 times. How many times 
than can a horse race say in its lifetime or career sorry um it might be a a career um they start as a three or four year old over hurdles and they'll be racing probably until they're they're 11 or 12 um looking at about say seven for the top horses maybe seven or eight races a, a season so yeah you know that's that's a lot of races over 50 races maybe in an average career of a, of a steeplechase or a hurdler um my career i ended up with about eleven thousand races um uh riding about eleven thousand uh home and abroad and you know you look back tony mccoy probably rode now i think sixteen, seventeen thousand races so that's that's wow. a lot we say the most most in one season i rode in was was around 900 wow what kind of toll must that take on like you and the horse um yeah the, as we say though the the horses some will will run more more times in a season they might run 12 12 15 times in a season um probably not not a lot more than than that uh on average uh but 900 races that was the the year i i was battling for the the championship with a guy called adrian mcguire another irish jockey um that that took its toll there were a lot of miles traveling to um to race courses um, and it certainly wasn't done in too many helicopters it was it was mostly mostly by car uh, a lot of time in the saunas trying to lose weight um obviously we have quite tight weight restrictions our, our bottom weight was around 60 64 kilos 10 stone 63.5 10 stone and to make that i i had to as we say sweat quite a lot during the year um to to keep my weight down to that uh, to that minimum that's crazy I, I remember watching a um sort of mini documentary about like mma fighters like 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 getting to their weight kind of thing and they do things like sit in a bath um that was like burning hot to the skin yeah, yeah. and then they'd cover themselves up in a duvet and coats and then sweat <laughs> it all out and then they go get yeah. weighed and then they just drink as much as they possibly could and put as much weight back on back on and it's very very true yeah not even not mma normal boxes exactly the same so i believe and some of them would lose 10 12 pound in one in one session or a couple of days to get down for for that weight um for mm. us um similar uh the most i think i ever lost in 24 hours uh was about 10 pound um remember it was before a, a race called the, the whitbread which is now the big race at the end of the, the end of the season and um yeah i didn't feel great <laughs> i was i was really struggling to to do a weight of i did 10 one i think i put one pound overweight it was supposed to be 10 uh 10 stone cash floor cash horse called cash floor and yeah, fortunately for me, the horse won. I'm not sure I was the best uh, used to him that the, that day, um, but uh, yeah. he, he looked after me. Um, but I, I had cramps so badly. I always remember getting onto the horse. I had cramps so badly in my legs when I got onto him. I couldn't get my feet in, in the irons. I couldn't oh. pull, pull my pull my knees up. And um, yeah, I wonder. Well, actually, wondered at one stage how I was actually going to get on the race, but. Uh, no, it all it all worked out well, but uh, wouldn't recommend it. Um, nowadays, I think jockeys are, are a lot more sensible with their their, their weights, uh, the proper diets. Um, you know, I I depended a little bit too much. Certainly, looking back, a little bit too much on saunas. 
Um, uh, I did really struggle at times to, to get down and do any weight under about 10, seven. Um, so yeah, it was probably something again that I would have changed looking back at my career as something I would have tried to, to bring more under control or maybe ridden with a slightly higher weight, maybe raise my minimum weight to maybe 10, four, 10, five, uh, rather than getting yeah. down and trying trying to do uh, st- uh, you know those real minute, low weights ten stone or someone. Yeah. So is that um that's self imposed or imposed by the trainers? That's not. Right. Um, it depends. It all depends on the handicap of a horse and um, mm. condition. We we call them condition races. Is is basically done with penalties. Though the horses usually carry decent weights in those races. Any any decent weights may say from ten ten upwards, uh, but the handicaps. And you're always liable to be riding a horse or or can ride ride a horse lower in the handicap and uh, then therefore have to have to get to your minimum. So in that season where you did 900 races, were you cutting weight before every single one of them? No, um, wouldn't happen every every day. And we say maybe two, three times a week or um, maybe less than that at, at, at times. Um but your weight would also also fluctuate. Uh, you know, if you got down, struggled, and and you um, uh, sit a lot in the sauna before a race and sweat out a lot of weight um, before a race on a Saturday. Uh, we didn't race on the Sunday, so we go out on a Saturday night, and always you'd always put on about five six pound on that that saturday night you'd have to you'd have to get on monday morning you'd have to get rid of it it was a vicious cycle yeah. um you sweat out the diuretic hormone uh so therefore basically your body when it does get liquid it just soaks it up like a sponge again and uh yeah it's 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 quite hard to deal and mentally i think psychologically as as well it, it was as hard that way as as it was um physically how did you even reach the number of 900 in one season? That must be multiple um, a day in some cases. Yeah, so uh, Jockey's Life, we, you know, the top lads um, on an average day would ride probably in five or six races. Uh, so, yeah, it was, would have been, I'd say, on average those days, um, yeah, as we say, five or six. But then there were times myself and Adrian chasing um, the title towards the end of the season. We do an evening meeting. Uh, as well through that sort of April May time, so we were doing two meetings. I remember both myself and Adrian did three meetings one uh, one day as as well. So we rode sort of I think it was Hereford, Southall, and and Huntingdon, um, and that was with the the help of a helicopter. Wow! So what would an average week look like, like mid season? Mid season, um, as I say, in, incredibly busy. Uh, riding out in the mornings, set your alarm six six thirty up, um, probably six o'clock. Um, away to ride out. Uh, school horses um, may have had to drive down to to Martin to Pipes, say that season, um, and ride out there, or maybe ride out in in Lambourne. Then you're on the phone from breakfast. You might take a slice of toast and a cup of coffee at breakfast. And then you're on the phone to the agent. You might have to ring certain trainers as, as well on the way to the race course, um, sit in the sauna at the race course prior to racing, um, anything from half an hour up to maybe an hour, hour and a quarter, go out, uh, ride five, six races, win, fall, lose, whatever, 
Um, and then home again that, that evening and again back on the phone, on the phone to your agent, to trainers, tell them how their horses run. If they if the trainers went there at the, the course, maybe speak to some owners as, as well. And that was it, bed at half nine, 10 o'clock and start the thing all over again. So pretty exhausting schedule for, for some of those lads yeah. there. As, you know, and it's exactly the same for the guys at the moment. How did you celebrate when you won? Um, if it was midweek race, you, you don't do much celebrating. You just sort of, it's always looking forward to the, the, the next, the next race. And I would say in those days, there was no, um, no racing on Sundays. Uh, so you could at least go out for a meal on a, a Saturday night. And that's what those first probably seven or eight years of my career you'd you'd go out and sort of enjoy maybe let your hair down a little bit more on on a saturday um and then usually spend most most of sunday regretting it and then getting back into the sauna again for the for the monday yeah what about say winning the grand national do you get a bit of a break after that uh we did actually the so that was to say the 90 but i'll take that as a uh, 94 Grand National winning on Minnehoma for Martin Pipe. Um, we didn't have any racing that week um, until the Wednesday, um, which was probably usually an Ascot meeting. Uh, so uh, I had yeah plenty of time to celebrate at that uh, for that for that national certainly. Um, so back we I think we had a bit of a party at a local um a local pub and then i had to drive down to martin pipes then the next day and then probably a little bit more celebrating on the sunday night and i think uh they sent a driver to pick me up for the the bbc um breakfast on on the monday morning i think i i slept all all the way all the way to the bbc studios in london all the way back again yeah yeah and what what do you win if you win the Grand National? Um, so, do you, uh, percentage wise, money wise, <laughs> a cup or yeah. well, percentage wise, um, prize money in those the first Grand National was about sixty thousand, and uh, as a jockey, you get about nine percent. It's in the in the newspapers um, called the penalty value. So you you get about nine percent uh, your share of that penalty value. So say the first Grand National one on on West Tip was was about sixty thousand, and I think the Mini Homers National was worth under a hundred thousand, so about uh, ninety ninety odd thousand. So I might have picked up about eight eight grand for for that, which certainly in this this day and age doesn't sound a lot. Um, but the guys now the the um, prize money is is much better. I suppose it's you're looking at. Maybe between five seven hundred thousand for the winner of the, of the nationals. So it's it's not a bad day's day's work for for the lads at the moment. Who won more, you or the horse? So the horse, um, the owner uh, will will on I don't know between seventy eighty percent. I think the the owner wow. receives of that penalty penalty value, um, but quite right too because they pay all the bills and they pay the, yeah. the jockey's fee. Uh, also, a jockey will be paid. Uh, a riding fee. Um, again, I don't know at the moment how, how much that is for a steeple, steeple chase jockey, maybe between 150, 200 quid. Um, certainly when, when I started, it was about 50 pounds. Um, but 
Yeah, it's it's not a bad living if you're at the top, but you say the top 10 jockeys. Um, but by the time you've paid probably a third of that in expenses and then um, you, you obviously have to pay all your petrol, you pay all your hotel bills, you pay 10% to your agent who's booking your rides, you pay your valet on the race course as well, who again is part of the team that I uh, forgot to mention at the start. You have a valet who looks after you, gets all your colors together, your saddles together on the courses as well. Um, so you, you have a fair bit of expenses as, as well. Yeah. And what did, um, the career progression look like from learning to ride a horse to winning the grand national? So I basically can't remember learning to ride. Um, my father trained horses in, in Northern Ireland and near Belfast, uh, when I, I was born or soon after I was born. Um, had a small yard, probably 20, 25 horses. And I just remember riding on my pony with, I couldn't, I, I believe, you know, I was, I was taught to ride when I was two, three, can't remember learning. Um, and then I started hunting then when I was uh, in Ireland, we moved over to Gloucestershire when I was eight and continued to go to pony club and riding my, my pony. We were able to take my pony also across to, to England uh, got more experience riding him then. And then we moved to a place, Newmarket, um, the center of sort of British racing. And I started riding out in yards age uh, 11, 12, uh, started riding out for, for Ben Hambry and um, Paul Calloway. And I did that basically every school holiday um, for four weeks at a time, uh, winter and spring holidays, then eight weeks during the summer. Um, and basically it was every day I was, I was riding out almost from, from the age of 12. Um, and then when I left school, uh, it was, I, I started three months with a tr trainer called John Bosley, great experience there. And then moved to a trainer, uh, called Tim Foster all the time, trying to get more experience, trying to improve my riding, uh, started to school horses, uh, which is jumping them teaching them to, to jump fences or teaching them to jump hurdles, uh, the smaller obstacles. Um, and basically then I was lucky to start riding in what we say point to points, amateur races. Um, so point to points and, and hunter chases. And basically then, you know, my, my career progressed from there. And why do you think you were particularly like so, so good at, at riding the horses compared to other people? Because there must have been a lot of cases where a lot of jockeys had been riding from such a young age. Like, do you reckon that was the source of your success or was it something else? Um, no, I was always, I suppose, always very conscious, just trying to keep improving. And um, I started off, I was terrible. In those, we say those amateur races, the point of points, the hunter chases, I was falling off all the time. And I, was, <laughs> I, I was useless. Um but fortunately, my, my trainer uh, at the time, I uh, was a friend of Tim Foster's, um, a lovely man called Colin Nash, and he had a small team of horses that ran in those races, and he stuck by me despite me falling off. In the end, I, I, I eventually rode a winner on a horse called Game Trust at Cheltenham in a hunter chase. Uh, he stood by. If he hadn't have stood by me, I don't know what would happen. Um and it basically it just gradually it, it took off from from there. I rode four winners the the, the first year, 
20 odd the, the next year. And I just set it as a goal every year to, to keep improving and to keep riding more winners. And I was fortunate. I think that sort of happened for the first, like about the first eight years of, of my career, I was able to, to ride more winners uh, year on year. And yeah, I was watching the tapes, watching tapes of myself, but also watching how the other top jockeys were doing at the, t- at the time. I was working with Huel Davis, great jockey who also worked, uh, was number one jockey for uh, Tim Foster. Graham McCourt was a local jockey, brilliant jockey as, as well. And of course, we had Peter Scudamore, who was who was champion. And it was basically in the weighing room, watching how they did things, um, how they rode in races. And um, yeah, you know, you were just trying to, to improve yourself all the time. Yeah. Was that a particularly like strong rivalry you had with the other top jockeys? Was it was it like good sportsmanship or a lot of time? Could it get kind of like a bit, like dirty in a way? <laughs> Needles here and there. Uh, yes, it, it was generally in the in the jump way and run. We all got on very, very well. Um, I think if anyone gets too big for their boots, as, as, as we say in the, in the jump way and run, um, they soon get a couple of falls and it would bring you down to earth very, very quickly. Um, yeah. Um, there, there was obviously there is always going to be the odd niggle. Um, I had um, a certain rivalry or uh, fracas with with um, a jockey who's very well known nowadays. It appears on on television a lot, Mick Fitzgerald. Uh, but it was all it was very soon forgotten. Um, we had a little bit of a row at, at Ascot one day. Um, but you're you're riding with these guys day in day out. We have to look after each other in in some of those races. Um, you know, if someone's on a difficult ride, you do, you look after them, they'll look after you in a, another day. And that's basically how, how it works. Um, but certainly as far as a very competitive sco- sport was concerned, uh, we all got on tremendously well. What was your favorite race to race at? Um, favorite, favorite courses. Um, I love Cheltenham, um, to ride around, you know, the festival is, unbelievable huge crowds a huge irish element to it the best horses in the biggest races you know the gold cup professionally is the race uh we all want to want to win uh but i loved riding around um over the big fences at aintree um i felt they were a bit more they were a challenge um and i had a lot lot of luck around that course as as well two grand two grand nationals um, I won something, a race called the Topham. I think I won that three times as well, but I just, I, I loved being able, loved riding around over, over those, over those fences. Um, it certainly got the adrenaline going. Yeah. I remember watching like the Grand National and other races sometimes as a kid on the TV. And one of the things that always was just like so shocking was suddenly how abruptly like someone would fly off a horse or, or like, like how much of a warning did you get from the animal that you were going on? Um, very, very little. Um, I think I fell about <laughs> fell three times in, in, uh, the national and yes, yeah, sometimes you can go to a fence. I'm all wrong at this. There's no way I'm going to get to the other, other side. And that's a matter of, yeah, just preparing, um, yourself, uh, for the inevitable, inevitable. And other times, yeah, you might jump the fence perfectly well, and there's a you know horse on the on the landing side straight in front of you, and you can't do anything about it, and um, and you just will your horse will go over the top of him or will be brought down. 
Um, always remember the, the race I won on Mini Homer. I was basically having a bit of a chat to Jamie passing the stands. You jump the water, jump. There's a little bit of a gap before the next fence, so we were having a little bit of a chat, you know, having a good day, yeah, so all of that. Um, he was having a great ride on a horse called Garrison Savannah. I was going better than I thought I would be on Mini Home at the, at the, the time. And as we approached the first fence second time around, um, a loose horse came from absolutely nowhere, came from the outside of the fence straight in towards Jamie. It hit him broadside. Uh, knocked his horse uh, over as he um, was about to jump the fence and, and Jamie was basically thrown over the fence. His horse couldn't jump it. And very luckily for me, it, it chose him. The loose horse chose him <laughs> at the target rather than my own horse. Um, it, you know, it just shows in a, in a national anything can change at any time. Yeah. And what about injuries that you might have received? Was there any particularly rough tumbles? Um, say in those, I think I had in total about nearly 800 falls, uh, through my career on a, on a race course, uh, had a probably like high or low. That's about average. I'd say, um, okay. <laughs> so 11,000 odd rides, uh, 700 falls. Yeah. Just, just about average. Um, yeah, I was very, very lucky. I broke two bones in my career, uh, broke a bone in my hand, and that was just a simple fall. Uh, but probably the, the most painful fall I had was was a fall at Kempton. And I had a horse behind me. Uh, nearly my horse had fallen and had nearly brought the horse behind me uh, down a horse called Forest Sun. Uh, Brian Clifford was, was riding it. And he, to save himself, um, put one leg out. That leg happened to land on my chest. And I fr- fractured Ooh. my sternum. Um, so I was taken taken off to hospital after that, and spent spent a night or two in intensive care. But very luckily, I was I was back riding again in less than two weeks. So um, I was really really fortunate with with injuries. Um, I had to retire in the end because of a neck injury, but that was basically the the, the amount of falls, um, continue landing on my head or whatever. Um, a C5, C6 injury, which, which eventually sort of affected me, affected my right arm so badly that I had to retire. But I have to say, I was, I was very, very lucky with injury through, through my career. Yeah. Yeah. Was it difficult for you in the moment sometimes to say some rider had gone down in front of you or there was a big pileup where you thought you weren't going to make the jump? Did you ever have almost a, a point in your head where you had to make that decision of am I going to do this and risk going through this or do you ever say okay it's just not worth it for me or the animals sake? um you don't you don't have time to think basically you're you're through it before it's basically it's happened it's it's on instinct really mm. um a couple of horses might have fallen in front of you you um you try and, and guide your horse sometimes there's nothing you can do a horse will either take you through it or, or he won't and some are a lot just like people, a lot, a lot more agile, uh, a lot more sure on their feet than, than others, and they'll take you through what you feel is an impossible situation at, at times. Um, but, uh, you know, that's you just hope and pray sometimes. <laughs> Close your eyes even. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was thinking about the Grand National as well, as I remember as a kid, um, they would be on the TV and my dad would get out the newspaper with all the little, like, jerseys and the names and the horse <laughs> And um, he'd be like, okay, just pick one. And so obviously he would just be like, oh, I like the color or I like that one's name kind of thing. 
And um, I just I just wondered, like, now having spent so long, like, on the inside of the game, do you have, like, cheat sheet in your head when it comes to how well you think a horse is going to do in a race? Yeah, I, um, to be fair, I... I don't I don't follow racing very much at all now. We live in Spain. Oh, really? Um I talked to a few uh, yeah, to, uh, talked to a few of the lads. Um Tony McCoy, the uh, very odd time, um catch up for dinner with him now and again. Um I'm one of one or two of the others. Brian Clifford I see every year when I'm, I do a run uh, Christmas day at Bushy Park. Um and and that's that's about it. So Betting wise, I've never even you know not like to bet as as a jockey. Uh, you can obviously when when you're retired, it, it's never really interested me um, on on that side. And so, so as far as horses and following what's going to win, what's what's it's not really a part of part of my life now. I I, I enjoy watching a lot of other sports, um, being football. I prefer rugby actually. Um, I love watching London Irish. Um, which is hard to do, as I say, based it based here in Madrid. Um, so get to, get to watch them on telly the odd, odd time or watch an international uh, MotoGP. I think it's fantastic sport. Uh, huge Rossi supporter. Um, I grudgingly say that yeah, Marcus is is a fantastic rider. Um, but uh, Formula One uh, again, uh, enjoy watching it. So um, yeah, as far as racing is concerned, yeah, don't see much nowadays do you reckon if you were in the position though like you wanted to bet do you reckon you could make a pretty decent living out of it <laughs> i'd say there's there's one bit of advice i've always given given to uh to people don't whatever you do follow jockey's tips whether they're retired or whether they're still oh, really? current <laughs> don't, whatever you do the worst tipsters in the world so um yeah <laughs> uh, to, to be so fair, you- to be fair though one or two guys and there's a uh, mark richards mate of mine who's still working out in hong kong um and as as a presenter on television out there a uh, very very good judge and i'm sure people that follow his tips don't do too badly um but i think it's a very hard game to to make a if you were setting out to make a living from backing horses um there's not too many people that do do that successfully so the opposite of whatever tip you give me now is what we should follow. So what would be your number one tip um, for betting on a horse if you had to? Number one, well, I, you have to go through. If, you, if you're going to take it seriously, betting on horses, I say other than mm-hmm. go to the, the national, you've got the colour. I like the colours. I like the name of that. You're as probably as well doing it that way as any other way. Um, <laughs> But for the, the guys, that those um, professional punters, uh, they're either on a course every day, um, they're watching every race, um, they're back at home, they're watch, watching it all day in, day out. And yes, I mean, I'm not saying they make a huge living. Some of, some of them do, do well out of it. Uh, but again, it's very much very up and down. Um, but you really have to, to live and breathe the sport if you're if you're going to become successful at, at it yeah so how much of it is based on luck the sport in general there's Do you believe in luck yeah I, I believe in in luck and sometimes you know um you know a horse that should win will won't win it's just yeah that 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 does certainly does does happen um 
and your hundred to one outsider like Foynaven and the Grand National um, 1967 will will come along, and you'll you'll get those those very long long price price winners as well. Um, yeah, it's it's down to luck on the odd the odd occasion, but um, as we say, it's professional punters try and put those percentages in in their favour uh, rather than the bookies' favour, and um, in the long run, uh, say for a few of them, um, it it'll work. Yeah, and now looking beyond being a jockey, how hard was it to leave it behind? Uh, yeah, it was certainly hard at at the time. Um, so I I was I say forced to retire, but my my injury got so bad in in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, went to America to uh, get some advice off a guy called Paul Check, kinesiologist in in California. He advised me to retire. I didn't take any notice of him for <laughs> for another three months. Went to see a consultant doctor in Ireland at the beginning of December. So I went to see him at the end of August. Um, beginning of December, I got the ultimate call that basically uh, my neck wouldn't take any more falls. Um, and yeah, it, it was tough. But again, you look forward. I was managing a, uh, I owned a, a sports marketing marketing company at the time. I And then things gradually over those three, four years, 2000, 2001, um, got more involved in travel Um Met up with a brother of a steward in racing, a guy called Johnny Bealby, and started started travelling with his company um, called Wild Frontiers, uh, based in London, um, and started leading riding holidays for him. And also that 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 time met a guy called David Hampton Adams. Um, he'd been to both North and South Poles, uh, climbed the seven highest peaks in seven continents um apparently the 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 explorer's grand slam he's just the first guy to have have done that and um through meeting david i then also started on uh get involved in a bit of adventure um completed in the uh the or completed the uh, north pole race which was to the magnetic north pole in in 2003 and off the back of that ended up doing a, a South Pole expedition as, as well. So life changed very, very uh, a lot through that six, seven, seven years. Yeah. What was the North Pole race? What were you racing on? Skis? So we were racing on skis, pulling sleds. Um, it was about three, 400 miles, I think, um, around Severia from Resolute up to Bathurst, uh, Bathurst Island, through Bathurst Island. Um, and whew, it was tough. It was tough. I had a bit of a problem with my my shoulder at the time. I'd fallen off a, a dressage horse after I'd I'd um, retired and dislocated my shoulder, and that was really loose at the time. And it popped out a couple of times as well during the during the expedition. But um, we spent most of the time myself and a uh, ex army guy called Tony Martin. Uh, we were chasing uh, some other uh, army lads. Uh, and uh, we finished second, unfortunately. But uh, it was oh. it was an amazing, an amazing race to be a be a part of. Yeah, you retired, and then you were still riding dressage horses. Well, yeah, um, the odd the odd time as <laughs> a bit, bit of rec- recreation. Played in a couple of polo <laughs> polo matches for ch- charity since um, 
since I retired from race riding. Um, but I'm not often, a, I lead riding holidays. Um, so sort of two, three times a year, we'll, we'll probably ride a, ride a horse for about a week or so. Um, but it's not often I, I ride these days. Yeah. So you've left the sport behind, but not the horses. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good, good to sit, sit on one now, now and again. Um, but yeah, at the same time, I enjoy running. I enjoy that way of keeping, keeping fit. So I can't say that I miss exactly. I miss the riding exactly, you know? Yeah. And now talking again about the North Pole race. So you've obviously been to the North Pole and you've also been to the South Pole. How did they compare? Because in my head, they're both just snowy wastelands. <laughs> snowy wastelands, yeah. Uh, it was magnetic North Pole, so it was basically I, I didn't become totally aware of this until I actually went up there. But there's there's yeah. um, the magnetic North Pole, there's the pole of inaccessibility in both North North and South, and then there's the true true pole. There's the geographic pole, ninety degrees north or ninety degrees south. Magnetic pole uh, was an old plotted position of about ninety. 95 um and that was at around 80 degrees um north at that stage um and that was through a little on the uh, frozen ice on the sea um but uh also across land as well if you were actually traveling to the north pole nowadays it's it's across that that polar ice cap um and that now nowadays as opposed to the 90s when it basically didn't start melting until maybe april may and people could do full ex- expeditions to the north pole it's it's now proving Im- impossible because it's it's melting that much earlier i believe i think i think someone maybe two to three years ago uh did a full expedition to the geographic pole 90 degrees north um in in basically 24 hour darkness um yeah up there uh because it was basically from april onwards it's it's impossible march april onwards it's it's impossible to do a full expedition now and how this is going to sound like an obvious question but how difficult was it actually to get to the the magnetic pole like what how much like preparation did you have to do? Cause I presume um, you can't just book a flight to the, to the to nearly the North Pole. Yeah, um, we were flown from Ottawa to Resolute or Callaway then to to Resolute. Um, we'd done a lot of training. We we had to get all our equipment together: sleds, all the gear, the skis, uh, all the winter um, cold weather gear, um, your food, your provisions, um, your stoves. Uh, the fuel for the stoves. So we were we were bringing with us on on that probably about fifty fifty kg, maybe maybe a bit more of, of equipment that we were pulling in in sleds as as well. Um, for the South Pole expedition in two thousand and eight, uh, we knew I knew that was going to be longer. Um, so we took provisions for sixty days, um, and fuel for six, sixty days. Um, so those sleds, when we set out, were about um, 120 kg. And that involved going to the South Pole. Um, it involved flying down to, to South Africa. And there I met up with the guy who was leading the trip. He came over from uh, Doug Stipe, uh, came over from, from America. There were three of us. Um, we met there. We spent two days, three days re- preparing in Cape Town. And then we flew down to the Russian base, Novo, um 
you know, in Antarctica. And then we had to be flown about six to seven hours to our start point. And to qualify for a full expedition, you have to start, whether it's from to the North Pole or uh, into the South Pole, you have to start from the coastline. So we were we went from a, a point on the coastline up uh, something called the Recovery Glacier. And we were trying to repeat an expedition that uh, Ernest Shackleton um, had, had tried to uh, do 100 years ago. Um, and fortunately, we got there, or two of two out of the three of us um, managed, managed to get there. Unfortunately, James Fox, uh, our third member of the team, he had to pull out after uh, 20 days, 22 days, um, and he was airlifted out. Uh, but luckily, myself and Doug made it made it through to 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 the pole. Yeah, how just 120 kgs? How are you pulling that even uphill? Like, uh, yeah, it's um, that's like double your weight, probably. Yeah, um, on on decent snow, it wasn't too too hard. But where sometimes even uh, it was wet snow, so relatively warm with the. You know, a decent bit of the first few days, it was only down minus five, minus ten, um, and it was quite quite deep snow in, in stages. So it was quite hard work, but we were climbing from about five hundred meters, the the depth of the uh, the ice thickness at the coast, to up to over two and a half thousand meters all the way to the pole. So we were climbing. Again, I didn't, I didn't basically take much notice of that before I was actually down there and think this, this, <laughs> this is going on forever. But we, we eventually got onto the, 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 um, polar plateau. Um, and it was a little bit more level for that, that last couple of weeks. Um, and, and then you were suffering with, um, conditions then were much, much colder, um, from that stage, you were looking at probably a minus forty, minus forty-five with with wind chill. I read you you consumed five thousand five hundred calories a day on average. How did you bring that much food to eat, and what were you even eating? <laughs> yeah. like? So it was all uh, dehydrated food, and basically that was, you know, weight wise, that was uh, the best we could we could do. We had chocolate and stuff as well, which um froze and was terrible for the teeth i think it came out with you know more more chips and everything up from from my teeth but um um the in we were saying five five and a half thousand calories but it wasn't enough i lost down there uh, about 40 pound doug lost 35 35 pound as as well um we were well short on calories basically i think we should have been taking about eight thousand calories um, a day um, to cover that distance. We were averaging about fifteen nautical miles, I think, each each day in the end. Um, but we were a long, long way short. And yeah, nearly we were so low on calories that we were nearly bringing the expedition in into doubt. The, you know, um, I I was really struggling at the end. And then Doug also he he got snow blindness. Uh, which is almost is a very painful condition, sunburn of the cornea, um, and yeah, we scraped home in the end. Yeah. How, so how many days did it take you? For, Forty-eight days in the in the end. Yeah. Forty-eight. And how long could you have gone before it was you were probably going to die? Um, sort of yeah, we we had probably more for, for say for say provisions. 
if it had gone much over 50, we would have had to start rationing. Um, you take a bit more in case there's there's a, a bad storm and you basically just have to hunker down for, for how many, four or five days until the storm go, goes over you. Um, so that that is why you you would you would um, you'd have a bit bit extra, but we wouldn't. And I was uh, just thinking about the reason why didn't we get into that? But you couldn't take the chance. You know, you might only be two days from from the pole, but um, if you dived into those provisions earlier, you're two days from the pole. But then you you might be there for another two two or three weeks as as well. So um, yeah, you could, we couldn't dive into those those extra provisions in those those the last few yeah. days and what what was it like being in like because i presume it felt like you were very alone out there just you two almost with the snowy wasteland like how, what was that like that it's like almost like mental isolation in a way i suppose not seeing anything else but snow it must have driven you crazy uh, it it certainly certainly did the most mind-numbing thing i've ever done in my life um just putting one foot concentrating on putting one foot on fr- in front of another whether it's skiing, at times I'd take the skis off um, and walk if the snow wasn't too deep uh, just to make a change, make a difference. And you sort of, people go, oh, it's sort of life-changing. You'll, you'll come back, you'll resort your life out and all of that sort of stuff. I'd done that on like day one. Um, and <laughs> so 47 days to go. And so you'd have, I basically have thoughts and just repeat the same thoughts probably over and over again for the morning. And then in the in the afternoon as something when things got a little bit, maybe you're more tired and got a little bit more difficult and have a bit of music, uh, put a bit of music on in the, in the, in the, in the afternoon. Um, and that's basically how, how we got through day, day after day. And the only real thing that, that changed that was probably about day nine. And we ended up in, in the middle of very hairy crevasse field. Um, and that was in the middle of the recovery glacier. Um, and we, we went in about sort of lunchtime on one day and we didn't get out for about 24 hours. I have to say that was, that was pretty hairy. Um, following, following Doug, we went roped up. Um, but we put the tent up in the middle of it. Uh, one, that night uh, and then the next day Doug went off to sort of investigate he took his um, separated himself from from his sledge uh, kept his skis on which is important to do when you're in that those conditions in a, in a crevasse field uh, but he very very nearly we saw him disappear behind some some rubble snow ice rubble um, and we thought we'd lost him so uh, James was still on the expedition at that stage um, I thought he'd 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 fallen into a crevasse, and it wasn't for about another five. It sent, felt like a lifetime, but another five ten seconds, he he suddenly shot up, and um, and and raced back over to us. And I always remember him shouting at the top of his voice. There's no way that Shackleton would would have got through here. <laughs> if Shackleton wouldn't have got through here, what in the hell are we doing? What in the hell are we doing? Yeah. You know, just absolute madness. But um, yeah, that was probably yeah but the hardest 24 hours of the of the expedition on your average day i presume you woke up you got walking you had your music in the afternoon what 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 happened with wait, how would you eat how would you sleep stuff like that so yeah get up um probably be out by about eight um so in the mornings um yeah 
cup of coffee, stove on, melt, basically melting snow all the time, um, dehydrated food again. So you'd add to your porridge or whatever in the, in the morning. Um, and it was, we were so, I was always remember being so hu- hungry that if a morsel of food would fall on the ice, there was snow, you'd be basically picking it up and you couldn't afford to lose one calorie basically. Um, so then we'd, we'd get skiing maybe eight, half eight, uh, and we were aiming to do an hour and a quarter. And then we'd stop basically for very little more than five minutes uh, to take on water and to take on more calories. And that would be dried fruit, gels, power gels, or even, or even chocolate, as I, I said. Uh, so it was refueling. Um, as we got onto the polar plateau, at the end of those five minutes, your hands were, were freezing again. Um, and so you get going, you try and get some circulation and heat back into your hands, circulation going into your arms. Um, uh, another hour and a half and, and basically repeated that through the day, maybe eight sessions, um, tent up at night. Um, first thing you do, um, clamber in and get the stoves going again um, and melting snow for, for the evening meal. And what was the camping like? Uh, so it was pretty, <laughs> we were pretty squashed in there, but we, we were, it was, a, um, I think it was a three man tent, as I say, for three, three of us when we started. Um, so a bit more space, uh, after, after James had, had left. Um, but it wasn't too bad in the tent. The, you know, even on the polar plateau, when it was very, very cold outside, um, if the sun was shining, um, relatively, it probably must still have been below zero, but it was still relatively, relatively warm in, in that tent. So it wasn't, wasn't too bad. And you become so conditioned to it anyway. So by, by day 30, 35, um, so yeah, reasonably comfortable in there and yeah, you were just so tired. You, you slept a full eight hours anyway. Yeah. Was it always bright? Like it was the sunlight? Yeah, 20, 24 hour, um, 24 hour sunlight. (laughs) Yeah. If if it was, and we'd have days with fantastic, um, conditions and then we'd have other days with complete whiteout. Um, and I always say Doug did amazingly, um, on navigation wise, uh, you would help. How did you navigate? So GPS obviously as well and compass. Mm. Um, but also days like that when it was a whiteout rather than getting out the, the GPS and the compass all the time, continually, um, the, uh, winds, those prevailing, prevailing winds, um, down there and basically it, they form something called sastrugi which are ridges in the snow and uh, they're they're in a direction that basically you can as long as you've got them to guide you the sastrugi uh you can take your take your um um direction from from the direction of the sastrugi yeah how alone were you out there like did you have like a like a radio to call back to the base. <laughs> it was absolutely empty, but um, obviously in the evenings um, we had a satellite phone with us, and yeah, I was, was doing. I'm not saying many, but we we do the odd interview along along the way. Um, I remember listening into 
uh, say it was BBC that are rung and sort of I got a little, I got a report that Arsenal had won a match during, uh, <laughs> you know, prior to, to doing an interview. Um, but there was there was very little other connection other with Liz Ampery, um, good friend of ours, but she'd help put the um, organise uh, the expedition as helped me to organise the the expedition. Uh, we may have spoken to her a couple of times and also then back to, to Novo, uh, where we were speaking to the, the Russians in, in charge there. Um, and yeah, not, not a huge amount of comms. And, um, what was it, uh, like how much, how much did you spend on this? Um, I was very lucky. I got a lot of it, uh, sponsored, um, Hmm. set out to do it, um, Right, and it then pulling things together, getting sponsors together. Um, it was probably a project that it took maybe three to four years in in total, getting it getting it all all in place. Um, I at one stage wanted a lady called Matty McNair, a Canadian, to lead it. Unfortunately, we were go, aiming to go in, say November, um, two thousand and seven. Unfortunately, Matty uh, went out with the guys from Top Gear, Richard Hammond and uh, Clarkson. <laughs> and uh, They did a, um, I don't know, some of you may have seen it, but um, um, Matty was looking after Richard Hammond with her dog team. And um, Jeremy Clarkson was in the Toyotas and the Land Cruisers and they were racing also yeah. again to the magnetic North Pole. Um, but Matty came off that expedition. She said, sorry, I'm not, I can't, I can't go back on the ice again. I don't know whether Richard Hammond completely finished her off, but uh, that was the, that was how she felt, felt at the time anyway. Um, she, she wasn't going to be able to lead my expedition. So then it was, it was a rush around trying to find someone, um, to lead, uh, the expedition, someone we could trust. And, um, Eventually, this was probably now July, August time. Um, I was introduced to a guy, this guy Doug Stipe from California, and Doug stepped in. And unfortunately, down to him, uh, he was he was brilliant. Got all the gear together, did a lot of organisation um, with the Russians and with the team in based in Cape Town, and also and based down in in Novo. Um, and without him, I, I certainly wouldn't be able to, to manage it. He um, took care of all the logistics, the food, the, the equipment. And basically he said to myself and James, just go and get yourselves as fit as you possibly can. So that led to us um, pulling tires around Richmond Park for quite a lot of the summer <laughs> and early autumn. Um and also, fortunately, at that time, we, we, we got on board a, a good few um, sponsors as well. And um, big thanks to a company called Interchange FX. They, they, they came on board. So things, fortunately, just just slotted into place at the right time. Yeah. How did you motivate yourself through all of this? <laughs> I think, I don't know. I think that's, that's it. You, you set out to do something like like, uh, like a South Pole expedition. Um, you, uh, I don't know, motivate. I, I had plenty of motivation. Um, it, I had, we had to get there. Okay, something, a storm could have come in. 
Uh, one of us could have got badly injured um, along the way, uh, but you know, we we really you know myself and Doug we we had to get there. You know that was <laughs> failure. We felt was not an option. <laughs> yeah, and was there like any of like what was your lowest moment? Like what was the most mentally challenging point apart from? say the day in day out and also being in that crevasse yeah that 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 day was a hard day but towards the end of the exp- expedition um so we traveled like five six hundred miles we maybe got 100 miles to go and i started to have you know a really huge fear of failure <laughs> that hey we've done them this whole distance we've slogged it out for 40 odd days and it was just we can't la- let anything stupid happen now um and unfortunately doug ended up getting getting the snow snow blindness um unfortunately he only had it in one eye so he was still able to we were still able to keep keep going um i he i think i sort of looked after the navigation for those those three or four days <laughs> he was uh he was he was on so many drugs to sort of to, to combat the pain as well uh, that, you know, <laughs> I think half the time when he was in front, we were going north rather than south, but, um, no, um, it was, it was a scary couple of days. We just hoped that it, it wouldn't get any worse, bandaged up. Uh, as I say, he was on a lot of painkillers as, as well. So, um, you know, that whole fear of failure thing really came, came uh, to a head over those, those three or four days. And gradually as we then got to, those last two or three days it started to, to improve and um, yeah it was only that last couple of days that I really started to feel confident that we could make it what was almost like in your head the legacy from that trip like what what will you always remember about it what did it teach you about yourself uh <laughs> I can do nine mind-numbing things if I really put my mind to it <laughs> um no, it was the endurance um, legacy. Yeah, I feel very, you know, proud of the, the fact that we, you know, thanks to Doug that we uh, we we got there. We we completed a, a full expedition to the South Pole, taking all our gear. Um, something that very very few people have have done before. Um, so and have done since. You know, you probably we're talking about a hundred um, to one hundred and fifty people. Um, so, a, a great expedition, but a great experience to go down there. And um, we were luckily when we arrived at the pole. They, first of all, they said, "What are you doing here?" They didn't have a clue that we, where we come from. What what were we doing? <laughs> and apparently, the Russians at our base camp in Nova hadn't hadn't rang forward and hadn't hadn't told them that we were on our way. Um, but to yeah get down and, and we were luckily we were shown shown around the Doug's had a, a good friend who actually managed the the South Pole pole uh, base at the time so we were shown around the the, the full base and um, interesting it was it was it was very very interesting to to see it. So is that is the base the only thing down there? Like, what is it? Yeah, that's it. There's there's two hundred fifty there's, there's two two hundred fifty people there during the summer. I think the team, the winter team, is about fifty, 
Um, after a couple of days of walking around, around the base, they, they eventually, a, a nurse very kindly told me that I could have a shower. <laughs> we hadn't showered for 50 <laughs> days, 50 odd days. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, in, I got talking to her and I said, there must be a lot of cold, cold weather injuries, uh, down here, obviously with the winter team. She said, no, very, very few. The only injuries we have down here are drinking ones. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was good, but it must be a very, very tough existence for those guys that are wintering, um, mm. wintering there, um, you know, six months of, of really tough, tough conditions. Could you do it again or would you do it again? I wouldn't do it. No, certainly wouldn't do another South Pole expedition. <laughs> um, there's, there's other, other things in, in, in life. Um, so yeah. Um, and nowadays so we say that the, the North Pole expedition is, is practically Im- impossible as, as well. Um, but I love, I love traveling now and, you know, with, haven't taken up the photography over the last seven, seven or eight years. Um, I just like visiting new places, um, traveling to different countries, um, you know, experiencing other cultures. So, you know, that's, it's not a challenge, but it's, it's what I enjoyed, uh, enjoy doing at the moment. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, talk to me. I, I, I said to you about how it's almost like you left the sport behind, but not the animals. Talk to me about the, when you were photographing, like the challenges that the Brook Hospital for Animals were facing, and like why you did that. Yeah, um, so that was one of the the first um, projects uh, I was invited to do. Uh, having uh, I studied photography in the air, and basically why I'd done that was that yeah, more and more sportsmen, obviously from the Olympics, two thousand and twelve, speaking opportunities were were becoming less and I was looking to something else to, 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 to do as well. And also traveling to some great places with wild frontiers and coming back with really rubbish photos. I thought I've got to, got to do something about this. Um, so that's why I enrolled in the, in the one year course, uh, at a place, the Spios Institute in Paris, um, fantastic school. Anyone wants to, uh, study photography. Um, and, off the back of that, yeah, I, I hoped to get more involved in, in travel photography. Uh, and thanks to a lady uh, called Ali Large, um, who was working with the, the Brook Hospital at the time, um, we basically followed the, the journey, um, working a journey of we- uh, working equines um, in four countries, uh, Guatemala, Egypt, Pakistan and, and India. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, hard. Some of the, some of the things you, you, you saw in these, these countries. Um, but at the same time, you have to remember that the, the owners, the, um, owners of the equines, whether they were horses or mules or donkeys, you know, they were finding it hard to look after their family, never mind their, their horses. Um, so a lot of what the Brook is doing in the, these countries is, is education, they obviously have a, a, a veterinary staff, large veterinary staff in these, these places, but it's also, it's, it's educating the, the owners that, Hey, if you look after your horses, you get them regular treatment at, at times, they will work better, more efficiently for you. And, um, so 
that it, that is a large part part of their their message their um, message in these these countries. So was your personal motivation almost to like bring awareness to how animals around the world were being treated? Yeah, yeah, it was to to bring that message back to to the UK and through Ali and through the brook. Uh, they very kindly put together an, an ex exhibition of my photography from from that, um, which uh, t- took place in the, the crypt in St Martin's in Trafalgar Square, um, and. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it it brought a good awareness to to uh, what the brook is is really trying to to achieve and to help help fundraising. So all the all these countries that you went to, especially with the ones that you were photographing, like the equines, at, um, they must be so different to the UK. And you must have had some really amazing experiences and had and come back with some really interesting stories. And I was wondering if there's any particular stories that came to mind. Yeah, the conditions in some of the countries that I was photographing, you know, um, in Egypt, uh, we went uh, near to Cairo, uh, this area where they have about 100, between 150 and 200 brick kilns. Um, and we went there at a reasonable time of the year. I think uh, I think it was spring and uh, maybe March, April time. And, you know, conditions weren't hot then, but... It was tough. Even then, it was it was warm. Um, you could, you know, the sun through the smoke. Um, middle of the day, you could barely see the sun. The conditions there through the summer must have been absolutely un- unbearable. Um, there was a lot of child labour. Never mind what they were doing with the the equines. Um, that must have been hell on earth. I would have thought through the months of of say July and August. Um, and I, I say that was probably nearly 10 years ago. I, I can't imagine things have changed too much. It must have been very difficult coming from somewhere like the UK where justice and equality is is comparatively so much greater than these places. It must have been difficult almost not to want to intervene in some situations. And then did you find it was hard sometimes to find that balance between documenting and getting involved? Yeah, um, and you can't do that. That's... Um, you go to there was a case in India where a horse had been very badly injured, and the vets had said, "Well, look, we're going to go in, go in and see this horse. It's lying on the on the floor, prostrating the floor." Uh, he said, "I can give this horse morphine, uh, but by rights, I should put him out of his in uh, out of his misery." Um, but he couldn't do it. You know, in England, that w- that would have would have happened. Um, but he had, had he done that, he would then not have been lied back in, in those tables. That is their culture. Um, that is the culture in India. And, um, you know, you c- c- couldn't do... So to someone from the West, that would have appeared extremely cruel. But that is how life carries on in in those regions. And you you have to obey obey their rules. You know, yeah. Why were people letting you photograph their animals? Like, I, I just, yeah. I don't know. I've, I've never tried to do anything like that. Was that almost quite yeah, strange? It was. Yeah. The so I would initially um, have have people, yeah, not be be keen on me hanging around with a, with a camera. Um, but fortunately, a lot of the time I was with the the Brook team, uh, whether it was their vets or their administrative team. Um, 
So it, it being with them, I was I was able to to carry on doing my job. Yeah. Did you learn anything from that that you didn't know before? Um, yeah, there was there was us, you know, um, and I suppose I travelled quite a bit in Central Asia before um, the poverty, and I'd witnessed that in sort of trips to Afghanistan and and things like that as as well. Um, so there w- there was nothing really really shocking. Um, the we we visited um, an area where they had a, a very popular shrine in 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 India, um, and the I, there was a lot of money being brought in, into that area through through the tourism because of the the popularity of the of the shrine. Uh, yet still, the mules and the the ponies that were being used. Uh, to transport um, people up the mountain to the shrine uh, in the evenings, those those equines were then coming to a rubbish dump, and were then grazing through uh, the, the, the rubbish. And it was, yeah, that was pretty pretty tough to to witness at, at, uh, and photograph. Yeah, and how did that compare from say going to these countries where these equines and animals were seen very much as almost just just tools how did it compare then spending time in mongolia where these animals are revered almost yeah. to a godlike yeah they're, they're revered and in, and yes they, you know, they can be hard on their, their horses in mongolia as well but they uh mongolians certainly have a huge respect for the for the horse um but it just it also shows how how mollycoddled and uh, our, our British thoroughbreds are in comparison to equines <laughs> around the world. You know, they are uh, treated like royalty uh, in, in comparison. Um, I enjoyed, I've always enjoyed my trips to, to Mongolia. I think it's an incredible country. Um, and yeah, the horse is uh, a very big part of, of the culture. The children basically grow up with them the youngest uh kids will will learn to ride on the the youngest horses so they'll be put on a foal or whatever when they're two or three and uh, as the foal grows up they'll they'll keep riding it um so uh yeah an amazing culture out there they they race uh they have an adam um they have a big races or uh events around ub but then each uh, time, I think it's the beginning of July every year, um, we'll have we'll have horse races, and some of these races will be up to about thirty-two kilometers. Um, so they will they'll canter or they'll trot their horses to the start, and then they'll race back, uh, say up to twenty miles, um, huge distance. When when you consider our longest race is the Grand National, and that's that's four and a half miles. And these children, some of them, they say, I think nowadays they, they don't let or they don't want uh, children riding under the age of six or seven. But I'm sure that some of the, some of the children I've seen, some of the kids I've seen riding are probably be about no no older than four or five. Wow. Um, was, that, was that very interesting for you in a way since you grew up from a very young age riding as well? That it was because I presume riding from a very young age, like in the UK or in Ireland, isn't obviously as like integrated in the culture so that must have been 
kind of cool for you in a way to have that see that connection between man and horse yeah yeah they're, they're out on the step and you know even that the young the young lads about say five six or seven and they look so natural in the in the saddle it's just you know they they're as natural doing that as 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 running from one year to another you know it's uh it's incredible their, their horsemanship at such a young age so did you get a lot of time to explore the country as a whole like did you spend time in like the capital and then go out to like the yurts and in the state yeah you'd be i've so i've traveled over to to mongolia um a few times now uh covering the the race uh for the adventurous the mongol derby um but i've also been over there for wild frontiers and led led riding holidays um which has taken me from UB, um, and then we've we've headed up to a beautiful lake, absolutely stunning bay, lake called Lake Hovskol, um, and ridden around there, and also visit went up further towards the Russian border or the Mongolian border with uh, Siberia, and um, visited the uh, the reindeer people up there and stayed. Um, a couple of nights in their teepees and uh that's that's that was quite a quite a trip as as well and the shaman up there as as well as witness um a ceremony um but yeah so it's it's been good i have been able to to travel around a little bit in in mongolia i remember i remember I was watching some documentary about it and i just i saw there was a the capital was quite comparatively to like the mo- nomadic ways out in the steppe the capital had so many like problems with stuff like alcoholism and just just general poverty and stuff like that and i just i wonder why did you get to speak to people out there like why they were why so many people had converted from the nomadic ways to what seemed like a way of living that wasn't almost as good in a way yeah um i suppose that you know they same all around the world almost the depopulation in spain people all heading into the the, the cities um and again, yeah, as you say, uh, alcoholism is a, is a problem in Mongolia as, as well. Um, but they, I suppose they go chasing their fortunes and going chasing a better life in, in the city. There's, there's more jobs, there's uh, better pay, um, and they get there and it's, it's probably as, as, as it works out, it's a, it's a worse um, way of life anyway, so... Yeah, that's, uh, you know, a lot of people have, are led, led that way. Oh, yeah. How, how did you talk to the people? Did you ever uh, translate? Well, we had, yeah, when, when we're on the, on the Mongol Derby, we have... Um, so when we're on the Mongol Derby, we have translators. Um, we have a driver. Um, it's lucky also, you know, I might have had an assistant to help me with photography as, as well. Um, so, yeah, you get to... You get a bit more idea of the of the culture there as as well. Um, I do that. They're, they're interesting. They're they're interesting, but they're very proud people. Um, tough as you like, you know the Nadam. Um, I think it's archery, wrestling, Mongolian wrestling, and the, the horse racing. The three sports that they they celebrate. Um, yeah, uh, there's not too many Mongolians I'd like I'd fancy taking on at wrestling. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> And so obviously like all these adventures seem almost just so far fetched in a way to like, to like, to like me, I, like, I've never done anything like that in my life, but how, how do you go about doing things like this? If, if you want to be adventurous, 
like because there's, there's there's like adventure travel and stuff but this seems like a whole other level it, it almost harks back to the days of explorers like shackleton obviously with a lot more technology and science but how, how would you go about like doing this does, does it i presume it costs a fair bit of money yeah and you know i've say been very lucky to have raised the, the money by doing it for, for a charity and then, then bringing on people and with the help of, of someone like Liz, um, who was working on the logistics, Liz Amprey, who worked on the logistics of my, my South Pole expedition, the walk in Newmarket. And, and through that, so the ex- expenses were all basically looked after. Um, so I've, I've been lucky in, in that respect hugely massively lucky on that that respect um you know i i suppose th- th- i was very lucky meeting johnny and and getting involved in in the travel with with his company with with our frontiers um and i suppose it's one thing the more you the more you do the more you travel the more you want to travel as as well and the more you go to crazy places the more crazy places you want to go to so um yeah yeah um, do you get much time to actually Go on holiday like a, like no, a I, um, normal holiday. <laughs> to be fair, nowadays it's I. I think um, our daughter has res- restricted my my travel a little. I'm not saying that. And then, uh, I I enjoyed being at home with uh, Millie, our daughter's four, and she uh, makes sure she keeps us <laughs> keeps us in order one way or another. But uh, she's fantastic and. Um, um, so th- through that, and I've say probably traveled quite a lot less over the last, uh, four years. Um, but yeah, if, you know, I said, I did the uh, Japan walk, uh, in 2017, another charity, um, expedi- expedition, um, just basically to walk from the Southern tip of Japan to the Northern tip and, um, through that, then I, I wanted to, uh, as it was always in the news while I was there, North Korea was, was next on, on the list. Um, uh-huh. and a good reason to go there was to run a marathon. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> managed, managed, managed to, to do that. But, um, yeah, this, um, my travel has been curtailed a little bit over the last, last few years, but I, I certainly don't mind too much. That, that Japan alone, like the walk you did in 101 days for like 2000 miles. Like, why did you do that? Apart, I understand it's for charity, but why Japan and why specifically? That? Yeah, yeah. Uh, why Japan? So it was 2000 and 2013, I think. And I was, uh, we were home and, and basically I thought I've, I need something. I need something to drive me. Things have been a bit quiet, whatever. Um, and basically having done a thousand mile charity walk in Newmarket, um, I Googled 2000 mile walks. And, uh, the first thing that came up, uh, was a book called all roads, uh, to Sata, uh, 2000 mile walk of Japan. And well, that's basically, that's where the planning started. And uh, took about four years for it to, to come off. Was that constant um, planning, though? Unfortunately, my, my nephew, uh, George. So, no, it wasn't It wasn't constant planning at all, no. But basically, time-wise, uh, I was hoping to do it in about 2015, so about two years later. I wanted to go and do a recce there to see how it would work. Um, so did that in about uh, 2014, uh, autumn, uh, but didn't actually get out there again till until 2017. Um, and basically, George, uh, my nephew, had been taken ill uh, with sarcoma, cancer, 
and uh, we then so I just wanted to make sure uh, everything was 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 fine uh, as far as that was concerned. Touchwood, everything is is uh, is a hundred percent with with George now. Um, and then it came about. Hey, we're going to do this this walk in in Japan. Why not do it for Sarcoma UK? So that all came together quite quite well in the end. Yeah, um, just again, day in day out. How was it walking the length of Japan? Was it quite different from like the different like areas? Because I've always wanted to go to Japan, and I've had a bit of a fascination with the country since I saw the film The Last Samurai. Yeah, it's obviously not yeah. like that these days, but <laughs> um, I've always wanted to go. And it just seems, it seems, I remember because historically it's been the most cut off country from the rest of the world for so long because it refused to let anyone in its borders. It was apparently, it's like the most alien. Until about 1850, wasn't it? 1850, 1860. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, it's like the most alien place on the planet you can like go from, say, like the west and i just find that so so interesting it must have been a complete culture shock for you shock yeah i tried to learn a little bit of japanese uh before i went over but basically that didn't take me more than where where's the next hotel or where, where's the where's the nearest supermarket or whatever but that's that's about as far as my my japanese uh stretched um but they the, the japanese are wonderful people they were so respectful so welcoming all, all the way through um uh, you know a lot of people would pass you maybe on their bike or on their car and they'd sort of look around and they said what, what do you, because i didn't go in a sort of i went up the north and and um west coast of um honshu the main main island so it's a sort of well off the the tourist track being being track as far as that's concerned so a lot of people look at him twice what's he you know what's he doing here foreigner doing here um but they drive past you and they come back 10 15 minutes later and they give you a drink um parade right. whatever uh fruit you know good luck wow. <laughs> whatever it's uh, just they and i was treated like that all all the way through um another day a man i passed uh, probably in his 70s uh in his garden he asked me and i could understand that he asked me in for a coffee so i, I but i was in a hurry i was late that day i had to get to the hotel before it got dark i said i'm very sorry i gotta gotta keep going in my very bad Jap- japanese and then i about a mile up the road he was i heard the bell going i thought i must have dropped something he was chasing after me and um Basically, all he wanted to do was to wish me good luck. And he presented me with a grapefruit, um, a coffee, <laughs> a latte coffee out of, out of you get from a dispensing machine and, and another uh, and, and some chocolate. And uh, it's just things like that happened all the way through the, the, the walk um, wow. and got to see some cool places, cool cities that I'd love to go back to, Aomori. Um, they have the Nibuta Festival, which is a, they have these floats with um, lights, lanterns. Um, they're very colorful, hugely colorful vo- uh, floats that depict the sort of Japanese legends. Um, um, Nagata, Kumamoto, which had suffered a, an earthquake, uh, fantastic castle, all the, 
Unfortunately, through the earthquake, a lot of the walls around the castle have collapsed, um, and they say it could be up to ten years before they finally finally do the do the repairs. Um, I came across just by accident, stumbled across a um, an Antarctic ex- uh, museum in the middle of middle of nowhere. Um, that was that was really interesting as as well, but. Uh, so it's, it was it was hard because most of the time you're just focusing on on doing that that 20, 20 miles 20, 20, 30 miles a day. I think I got up to about fifty some some days, um, but so focus on getting the miles done. You know, um, taking on enough calories and making sure you you're right that you you weren't over forcing you over facing yourself. Um, but yeah, it was it was a good place to do certainly do a long distance walk. Yeah, um, one of the things I've always heard about Japan is it's like an extremely safe country comparatively to say some places in the West. Um, was that one of the factors that played into it? Did, did you ever feel unsafe? And um, no, never uh, through through that. The only the only thing I had in Japan where uh, they they have these extremely long. It's very mountainous along the certainly along the coast in Honshu. Uh, there were areas where you'd have to go through very long tunnels. It was the only way. It was the only way to to the other side of the mountain range. Um, and some of them would be up to two miles long, and uh, they didn't have. The, the huge amount of space for, for people to walk through them, and um, so uh, yeah, it was scraped up against the wall in a, in a few of those uh, very dark tunnel, um, basically with all your reflective gear on. Um, yeah, that was that was about the only the only time I felt unsafe. Well, that's that's a good point actually. So when when walking from one end of the country to the other, how did you go about like planning that? And um, did you did you try and stick not not to main roads and stuff, but almost like walking places as well? Yeah, yeah. Try try to, but at other times it just wasn't possible. That the only way through, say this mountain range was by by following the the, the main road, um, uh, or it would have added a huge amount of time um, to it. So mostly, I had a I had a rough idea. Um, which way I was going, um, and then just basically Google Maps. I uh, had an, my own um, one of those personal Wi-Fi's that you can rent as soon as you get over there um, device. Um, so oh, like portable, yeah, portable, little portable Wi-Fi. Oh, so, cool. so you'd be so you could download your your Google Maps, set out your route, um, and nine times out of ten, that worked really, really well. So again, you must have been alone, barring the people you met along the way. Yeah, I had a couple of people from my girl, girlfriend Olivia came out and and walked for three or four days. Um, she spent a, um, about a week all together in, in Japan, um, and then sort of other friends, um, a couple of other friends came and walked for a couple of days as, as well. So, what would that have been? Probably eight or nine nine days. I would have had company. I had a journalist at the end, Mint, Minty Clinch came and, and walked a couple couple of days also uh when i got up to hokkaido um so other than that yeah it was mainly mainly alone yes yeah it must have been so different in a way because obviously in in a sort of similar way when you did your antarctic expeditions and things 
it's like going from a place where it's just completely white and snowy and like you can't really see anything and it's almost like uh what's it called like when they like uh take away like your all the senses like um oh, I, I don't know the word sensory yeah sensory deprivation comparing that to japan which must be almost a bit like a sensory overload overload yeah um yeah, it was amazing. the temples uh, that I say oh, the Namuta festival. Things, so many things I'd like to go back and see in sort of my own my own time, and, and to be- beautiful cities that I, I didn't get a chance to to see much of uh, Kyoto, Osaka. Um, like to spend more time. Be- beginning of end of trip, um, flew into Tokyo, flew out. Um, love to see more. Of the, of Tokyo as, as well. So, um, certainly recommend it to anyone who, who, wants, who enjoys travel. Yeah. Get yourselves to Japan. Well, cause obviously in that, when you were doing your Arctic and Antarctic expeditions, you had to bring your stuff with you, like the food and provisions here. Obviously you stayed in hotels and, um, did you then buy your food along the way? How did you do that? Yeah. So, uh, did I took a tent with me as, as well. Um, didn't have to put it up too many times. Probably stayed in the tent by eight, eight or nine. Stayed on a couple of campsites. Um, pitched it in a playground one night. It was absolutely bucketing down, and it was a bank holiday, bank holiday Monday, I think it was. And it was throwing it down, which you can do, obviously, in Japan. Um, and yeah, the only place I could get was a children's. It was the only bit of space in the whole whole village that I could get any in the middle of a, a children's playground um that was nearly uh flooded uh, i fortunately placed it on the only dry dry bit of ground in the whole village so did you just have a little backpack with you or something so i had a backpack about 16 18 16 18 kilos um so all my, all my gear tent um laptop hard drive um and then also stayed in, in business hotels uh, as well. Most of them you could literally just stop. You'd said it, and it would be fine. They'd have space, but the odd if there was a festival on or something, you you'd have to try and and, and book ahead, which mostly I could do on online as as well. So it wasn't too too bad in that respect. It's just so crazy. I'd love to do something like that. What was that book called again? That was uh, All Roads to Sata. I think was oh, the okay. the one I uh, originally all roads lead, all roads to Saturn. Yeah. Why did you have your laptop? Were you documenting it or something? So I was I was taking photos along along the way. So obviously I was wanting to download, um, do a bit of a blog as as well. Um, but also if I had some people were were requesting photos, maybe from past Mongol derbies or 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 journalists also. So. I really had to had to have that with me, and something I could do in the in the evenings as well. Um, so, if that book, going back to that book, uh, the journalist was Alan Booth, and yeah, the Rose to Sata, a two two thousand mile walk through Japan. Wow! And um, so, do you still have that blog up? If anyone was interested in just seeing what the whole journey was like, um, no, I think actually, I think it's gone. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's, uh, yeah, I think it was. I think I mainly posted on Facebook, um, but no, I don't have that, that Facebook account anymore. And if you had to choose another country to walk from the bottom to the top of, which one would you choose? Would you do it in Britain? Um, that was, yeah, 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 
Land's End to John O'Groats. Um, I think, yeah. That, yeah. So it's a, it was a thing about doing it in different different places. And through that, that's why I then went to North Korea. I would love to have been able to have walked through that country. Um, it's, it would just be impossible to do, I think, at, at the moment. Uh, I know there are a couple of tours that um, lead um, hiking trips in the, the northern, uh, more mountainous uh, areas in the country. Um, so a lot of people went, some just for the weekend, but a lot of people also went for a, a one-week tour or a 10-day or a tour on top of their, on top of their mar- marathon or running experience. Um, and it was, it was really interesting to, to see it. Uh, we had, you say about that guy not having, we had our own tour guide from, from Corio, from the company in Be- Beijing. Uh, but then we had three, three North Koreans with us at all times. Um, we had the driver, we had two guides, uh, with us. So it was a group of, we were a group of about 16, uh, from all around, all around the world. Um, and we were we obviously spent a lot of time in Pyongyang, the capital. We we were taken over on the Saturday. We ran the marathon on the on the Sunday. Um, then the the ten day tour started. Took us to places, I say, around the capital. Saw a lot of the sites, various things in the in the capital museums. And then we were taken to a Pyongyang, I think it was, uh, just north of the capital. We were shown a school there um, where they were all. Uh, learning English. Um, there was, English. There were, yeah, there were there were some great Eng- English lessons they were they were having at the at the, at the t- time. Um, and some of them spoke it very, very some of them probably nine, ten, ten year old uh, children um, spoke. Some of them certainly spoke English very well. Um, to playing table tennis, all the physical activities as, as well. Um, and then we went to the east side of the country, and it was about this stage where I was dying to go for another run, uh, just to sort of loosen up after the, the the marathon. But we were not allowed out the hotel. We we had to wait until the next day. That basically we we got off the we got out, we got off the bus to go into the hotel. We could not go out of the hotel until the bus was waiting for us the next day. Uh, we were not just allowed to walk down the streets by by ourselves. Um, we would have got into big trouble, uh, but also the the, the people, the, the the guides that were looking after North Korean guides that were looking after us, they would have got into huge trouble also. So we had to, you know, certainly had to respect that. And there was beautiful beaches in this. Um, uh, it was a city called Wonsan. Um, and yeah, beautiful beaches there, but we were we were not not allowed to go anywhere near them. And my last question before we finish up is: if you couldn't have been a jockey, what would you have been? Ooh. Um, I would say if I hadn't been a jockey, I'd, I'd love to have been an, a sportsman of of some type. Um, not sure it'd have been any good at any other sport, but um, you know whether it was to play, play rugby. I love rugby at school. Um, even though it was a bit, bit small for the, for that. Um, and as to be, I raced cars for a couple of years as well. Um, again, fantastic sport. So I'd love, love to be a sportsman in some respect. Um, if I stayed at school, um, 
done my A-levels and gone to university, uh, gone to college, then I probably would have ended up being a vet. Before you go, I'd like to say one last thank you to Richard for finding time to do this and for giving me a really interesting insight into his world. Hope you enjoyed listening. Until next time.